Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I will be speaking with Nadia Wad about Tylenol toxicity and more specifically the Rumec Matthews nomogram. Uh, Dr. Nadia Wad is an emergency medicine pharmacist at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. After obtaining her Bachelor's of Arts degree in Biologic Sciences from Rutgers College in 2007, she earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy at Rutgers University in 2011. She completed two years of postgraduate residency training at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital, specializing in emergency medicine pharmacy. Nadia is board certified in pharmacotherapy. In addition, she is the associate editor of the blog Emergency Medicine PharmD, available at empharmd.blogspot.com, and she has authored over 75 educational entries related to the application of pharmacotherapy in the emergency department since the blog's launch in 2012, which currently garners approximately 50,000 views per month from an international audience. She can be followed on Twitter at Nadia underscore EMPharmD. Uh, before we get started, Nadia, did you have any disclosures to share? No, I have none to share. Awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into it? Um, and as I mentioned in the intro, um, we're going to be talking about Tylenol toxicity and more specifically, this really famous nomogram called the Rumec Matthews nomogram. Uh, so before we get to the nomogram, why don't we talk a little bit about Tylenol toxicity? At least in the past couple of years, I know uh, it has been a hot topic with the FDA in terms of lowering the max dose of OTC Tylenol and the labeling and also considering a limit for the maximum amount of Tylenol per tablet in some of the prescription products like Norco, for example. So before we get into you know the debate of uh, 4 grams versus 3 grams and things like that, can you give the audience a good idea of what is an actual toxic dose of Tylenol? And clearly we can compare that to the traditional max dose of 3 to 4 grams per day. Sure. So it's often quoted that a single acute ingestion of approximately twofold of the therapeutic dose. So a single acute ingestion of seven and a half grams or more in adults or 150 mg per kilo in pediatric patients. This really isn't based on a whole lot of human data. Um, and it's actually somewhat conservative in terms of what we actually consider to be a toxic acetaminophen overdose. Um, so again, as I mentioned, it's about a twofold increase in the amount of therapeutic uh, acetaminophen that can be ingested on a daily basis in both adults and pediatric patients. So then if you're considering, given that we're, we're thinking about basically doubling the normal therapeutic dose, for a patient that takes one tablet above a 4,000 milligram max daily dose, we're not really considering that patient toxic. We're more worried about the patient who had an acute ingestion of literally double the normal amount of Tylenol that would be um, acceptable for a daily dose. Is that correct then? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly. So then given that, it seems kind of hard to get there unless you're doing it intentionally or you just don't know that you have some Tylenol in some of your other combination products. How common is it that we're seeing Tylenol toxicity in the United States? So the American Association of Poison Control Centers actually released their 2015 data this past December, and acetaminophen toxicity is still considered to be among the top 10 categories associated with um, the largest number of fatalities in the United States. Uh, poison control centers across the U.S. receive over 10,000 annual calls related to acetaminophen toxicity every year. It does account for about half of all cases of acute liver failure. 
the thing that we have to bear in mind is that, uh, as you mentioned, Sean, there is, uh, in terms of etiology, a good proportion of intentional and unintentional ingestion associated with this syndrome. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, it happens um, as a result of the fact that acetaminophen is available in a number of combination products, which folks may not realize um, exists in a number of prescription and over-the-counter products. So it's important to ensure that our patients are educated and they're aware that some products that they may not consider to even have uh, the branded version of acetaminophen may actually contain uh, acetaminophen within the combination product. Yeah, and I know that you know this was a, as I mentioned, a really hot topic at the FDA to consider reducing the daily maximum from four grams to three grams. And I know one of the manufacturers, you know, of the manufacturer of Tylenol, branded Tylenol, actually did do that voluntarily in their packaging. Um, but as far as I know, the FDA elected not to decrease, mandatorily decrease the max dose, but then they did make a move for some of these combination prescription products. Would you mind just briefly touching on that? Sure. So a number of years ago, the FDA ruled that the maximum amount of acetaminophen in prescription products should be no more than 325 milligrams. Uh, so there was major changes from the manufacturers in putting out those combination products that contained acetaminophen to change their formulations to contain no more than this maximum amount of acetaminophen uh, per dose. So then... Just for, I guess, historical perspective, can you give the listeners a hint at what was a combination product that would have been impacted by this uh, regulatory change? So uh, previously with the prescription products that contained acetaminophen, such as opioid analgesic combination products with uh, oxycodone and hydrocodone, these products contained uh, these opioid analgesics with um, a dose of 500 milligrams of acetaminophen per uh, dose. Um, and so when this FDA ruling came out, all of these products that contains acetaminophen originally of 500 milligrams were actually discontinued and reformulated to only contain no more than 325 milligrams of acetaminophen per tablet. And if I recall, Lortab used to be uh, hydrocodone with acetaminophen that had seven and a half milligrams of hydrocodone, but wasn't it all the way up to 750 milligrams of the acetaminophen component? Correct. Yeah. So that formulation has been discontinued. Um, and so that product um, will only contain currently 325 milligrams of acetaminophen with uh, either five or seven and a half milligrams of hydrocodone. So that's actually, you know, a pretty big change from a regulatory standpoint to to not just set a maximum, but even to mandate that these products that have been approved on the market, uh, they must reduce the amount of Tylenol per tablet, which is pretty pretty impressive that the FDA took such a, a strong step towards preventing this unintentional toxicity then. So then um, in terms of Tylenol toxicity, um, you know, from my point of view, one of the scary things is that oftentimes patients don't have a lot of symptoms until... Um, irreversible harm happens to them. Would you mind just very briefly uh, touching on some of the time course signs and symptoms of Tylenol toxicity? So in terms of the manifestations and time course of toxicity, uh, these patients often will look well when they present to the emergency department before actually looking worse. 
So within that first 24-hour period, we consider this to be stage one of acetaminophen toxicity. And most patients generally look asymptomatic. Uh, Some of them will present, if they do have any symptoms, with flu-like symptoms of uh, nausea, vomiting, general malaise. So stage two of toxicity usually occurs at the 24 to 48-hour mark post-ingestion. These patients often will progress to hepatic injury, Uh, with an increase in ALT, uh, followed by an increase in PT and INR. Uh, Patients will often experience right upper quadrant pain and tenderness. Um, AST tends to peak a little bit later at 72 to 96 hours. Patients then will progress, uh, if left untreated, to stage 3, which generally occurs over 72 to 96 hours post-ingestion. Here in this stage, patients will experience a peak in hepatic transaminases, uh, hypoglycemia, spontaneous bleeding, and jaundice. Some patients may also experience acute renal failure in addition to fulminant hepatic failure. And um, if they still do progress, uh, they may experience encephalopathy and coma. And then stage four, um, if patients do survive this stage three, uh, there's generally resolution of all of these signs and symptoms of toxicity, but this may take up to two weeks. So Nadia, I think that one important thing with this time course is that these patients present asymptomatically. So for any overdose patient, especially the intentional overdose patient, clearly it's important to get the Tylenol level early when they present because you may not know um, until a day or two later as they start exhibiting signs and symptoms of toxicity that they actually co-ingested with Tylenol as an example. Correct. And a lot of these times, these patients may not have a general sense of when they actually took uh, the acetaminophen. A lot of these times, we can't really trust the patient in terms of the timing of ingestion. So it's really important once they do present to determine what their serum acetaminophen level is and taking into account their signs and symptoms, guesstimating where they may fall in terms of stages of toxicity and going from there in terms of management and uh, monitoring uh, treatment. No, not not to get too much into the biochemistry of it, but uh, could you briefly explain why we don't see immediate toxicity with Tylenol, but it does have this kind of Um, delayed time course of toxicity? So in terms of absorption in the setting of therapeutic ingestion, it'll generally take place within 90 minutes. Absorption in the setting of most um, overdoses related to acetaminophen um, happens over a two-hour period. Now, bearing in mind, this time course uh, is not really well established in the setting of patients who've ingested an extended release formulation of acetaminophen. Um, and, and in particular, absorption may also be prolonged in the setting of co-ingestants um, that prolong gastrointestinal motility. So we're talking about anticholinergics such as opioid analgesics, as well as diphenhydramine. And in the setting of massive overdose, Depending on the amount ingested, the formulation that's been taken, and the presence of co-ingestants, absorption may be further prolonged. So in terms of, you know, looking at a patient's labs and seeing that if patients have a peak in their AST, if it's peaked upon admission, then you can't really trust the patient history of having taken the acetaminophen in terms of the time frame, because if it's peaked, we don't really expect it to peak until later within the uh, toxidrome. Excellent. So kind of the crux of 
today's episode is going to be kind of the interpretation of that level in terms of whether you should initiate therapy or not. We will get there, but before we get there, I just want to briefly touch on what is a standard therapy for Tylenol toxicity, and then we'll definitely get into uh, using that Rumac Matthews nomogram and some of the intricacies of it to identify who should be treated. But just very briefly, what would you say are some of the key concepts to the treatment of a Tylenol toxicity patient? So before jumping into the antidote, a lot of us may forget about using activated charcoal in these patients. Uh, For those patients who present with an ingestion or with uh, signs and symptoms of acetaminophen toxicity, if you have the time frame of when the ingestion actually took place, um, activated charcoal can actually be considered um, even beyond the one to two hour time frame post-ingestion. Uh, it's been observed to have some benefit in those patients who also are treated with N-acetylcysteine in terms of mitigating the hepatotoxicity associated with acetaminophen toxicity. Uh, but bearing in mind to not really uh, use or consider activated charcoal in those patients who um, present with vomiting, who have an altered level of consciousness, um, those patients who are at risk of aspiration, uh, and those patients who may have ingested corrosive substances or proconvulsants. Um, in terms of using N-acetylcysteine, which we all know is the antidote for acetaminophen toxicity, uh, the protocol in terms of dosing was actually originally developed to match the proportional loss in glutathione stores. And we know that one of the mechanisms in terms of how N-acetylcysteine works is that it's supposed to serve as a glutathione precursor in helping mitigating the effects of the toxic metabolite NAPQI. Uh, whether or not we use IV versus oral and N-acetylcysteine is up for debate. Uh, in general, the oral uh, regimen for N-acetylcysteine is uh, somewhat prohibitive in terms of the fact that it is a 72-hour regimen with a loading dose of 140 mg per kilo followed by a maintenance dose of 70 mg per kilo taken orally every four hours for an additional 17 doses. Um, it is poorly tolerated, so some patients may require the use of an antiemetic um, to be administered along with the oral N-acetylcysteine. I mean, it's probably best to administer the product in a covered and sealed container that's mixed with juice and chilled and ice as a result of the fact that it does have um, a not-so-pleasant smell as well. And really, on top of that, thinking about the intentional overdose patient, they may not be compliant in taking an oral therapy, right? Right, and so it does require close observation of these patients, um, especially in the setting um, in an institution where that close monitoring uh, may be challenging in terms of nurse-to-patient ratio. Uh, This may not necessarily be ideal to give in the institutional setting. And if I understand correctly, the IV version of N-acetylcysteine didn't exist since the time of uh, treating Tylenol toxicity that historically we use the oral version and then the IV version kind of came along a little bit later. Is that right? Correct. So in terms of the availability of IV and acetylcysteine, it actually wasn't available on the market until 2004. Uh, Prior to that, the oral formulation uh, was evaluated and studied in patients uh, back in the early 60s. 
In terms of the regimen for IV N-acetylcysteine, it is a 21-hour regimen. So patients will receive a loading dose of 150 mg per kilo administered over one hour, followed by the first maintenance dose of 50 mg per kilo administered over four hours, followed by a second maintenance dose of 100 mg per kilo administered over 16 hours. Uh, Now, bearing in mind a number of things associated with this formulation, the first is that uh, particularly in those pediatric patients, in general, half of the volume of the diluent is used in those patients who are between 20 and 40 kilos versus those who are uh, more than 40 kilos. The other thing that we have to consider is that one challenge that we all experience within our clinical practice setting is uh, obese patients. And so does hepatotoxicity in obese patients differ with acetaminophen toxicity versus those patients who are not obese? Uh, There actually hasn't been demonstrated in one recent uh, retrospective review no real difference in the incidence of this in the setting of this toxidrome. Now, also bearing in mind that Um, with this somewhat complicated regimen, you do have a potential for errors associated with the rate of the infusion, dosing, potential delays, and interruptions. And so one and two infusion bag methods have actually been proposed as alternative options to this current traditional three-bag infusion method of IV and acetylcysteine. So then uh, it sounds like as you mentioned, the oral therapy based on the FDA labeling is going to be a 72-hour duration. For the IV, it's going to be 21 hours. At least in my experience, I know that sometimes if patients truly demonstrate some toxicity with Tylenol, um, we not only wait the 21 hours if we're giving the IV, but we are checking acetaminophen levels to make sure they're undetectable. And also, I've seen a few instances where the Poison Control Center recommended continuing therapy because of persistently elevated liver function tests. Would you mind just briefly sharing your your thoughts on duration of therapy? Sure. So in terms of particularly specifically with the oral regimen, if you are going to be using it within the institution, most patients don't really warrant the full 72-hour regimen. You can actually tailor the regimen to the patient. So if patients have an undetectable acetaminophen level and no evidence of hepatotoxicity uh, with the oral administration of N-acetylcysteine, you can stop the regimen. For the IV formulation, uh, we tend to recommend uh, rechecking hepatic transaminases and serum acetaminophen levels before the end of the regimen. So perhaps at the 19 or 20 hour mark to determine if there is a need to continue the IV formulation. So for those patients who continue to have a measurable serum acetaminophen level or who continue to have elevated hepatic transaminases and INR greater than 2, or if serum creatinine does not return to baseline, we will generally recommend continuing the infusion. Uh, so Nadia, aside from potentially activated charcoal and N-acetylcysteine, either IV or PO, are there any other therapies that may be considered in these overdose patients? So there's actually a group of uh, pharmacologists and toxicologists, an international group called Xtrip, that have developed guidelines for using extracorporeal therapy in the setting of uh, toxicologic emergencies. And this group actually put out a publication a few years ago related to the use of extracorporeal therapy in the setting of acetaminophen toxicity. They do recommend it in three settings. Uh, The first being 
if the acetaminophen level is more than 1,000 and an acetylcysteine has not been administered, if patients present with altered mental status, metabolic acidosis, an elevated lactate, and a serum acetaminophen level of greater than 700 to 900 um, in the setting of whether or not an acetylcysteine is administered, um, extracorporeal therapy is recommended in this uh, in these settings. So we're talking about our massive overdose patients, potentially those patients who may have taken a massive amount of those agents that are uh, available in combination with acetaminophen, such as our opioid analgesics and diphenhydramine, where we may have a delayed peak, if you will, in terms of the acetaminophen level. And when you say extracorporeal therapy, what what exactly are you referring to? So they actually prefer intermittent hemodialysis in this setting um, to help potentially correct uh, any metabolic acidosis that develops with acetaminophen toxicity and also potentially uh, removing the toxic metabolite NAQI. Bearing in mind if uh, intermittent hemodialysis is initiated in these patients along with an acetylcysteine, and acetylcysteine itself uh, is removed via dialysis, the only recommendation that the authors of this guideline recommend is that for NAC to be continued at a, quote, increased rate during this period, but the rate is not actually specified. So you're saying that if that dialysis is started, you probably should give more N-acetylcysteine, but in terms of how much more, we don't have great data to support a specific dosing regimen then? Correct. Well, there are certainly a lot of intricacies associated with the treatment and the pathophysiology, but one thing that I'm really excited to talk to you about is actually the decision to treat. So we briefly touched on that generally toxicity is defined at something around the 8-gram mark per day for an adult patient. And what do we do with those patients where either we don't have a clear history in terms of how much they took? We're in that gray area between the 4 and 8 grams. Um, How do we actually determine whether the patient is at risk for hepatotoxicity worthy of treating with the N-acetylcysteine? Or when do we decide it's not appropriate and the risk of toxicity is low enough that they don't have to undergo this regimen of 21 hours or, or longer, depending on how you're actually giving the antidote? So the nomogram, the rumac matthew nomogram was actually established to assess the risk of hepatotoxicity uh, in patients with acute single known times of toxic acetaminophen ingestion. It was originally developed to help differentiate between those patients who were going to be likely to develop hepatotoxicity and those patients who were not. Uh, and it does have a very interesting history behind how it was developed. So neither Rumac nor Matthew were trained in toxicology. Rumac currently still is uh, a pediatrician. Matthew was a cardiologist. And Rumac actually developed an interest in toxicology, and he was requested to write a commentary about acetaminophen poisoning. He wrote the commentary, and it was actually rejected by the editor because the request was for something that was a little bit more visual. So when Rumac met Matthew in 1973, uh, they developed the nomogram for acetaminophen toxicity uh, using a semi-log scale. And what they did was that they actually based the nomogram from uh, 64 cases of acetaminophen poisoning back in the 70s, and they plotted the initial 
plasma concentration of acetaminophen of all of the cases versus time of ingestion based on what we could obtain from the patient's history. And there was a line drawn between the development of hepatotoxicity, which was defined as uh, elevation in hepatic transaminases of 1,000 or higher versus those who did not. And that actually led to the so-called famous line on the nomogram uh, related to the original 200 line in terms of hepatotoxicity that may be experienced for those patients who ingested acetaminophen um, at that four-hour mark. So you're saying that the original line, if you will, was four hours post-ingestion. If their serum acetaminophen level was above 200, then they were at risk for acetaminophen toxicity. Is that right then? Correct. So that was the original line when the paper was first published. And then when the studies began to take place related to the antidote uh, and acetylcysteine in the later 70s, the FDA actually required a 25% safety factor for the nomogram. And that is what became permanently adopted here in the United States through today. So this is the reason why we currently have the treatment line, if you will, of 150 mics per ml of serum acetaminophen at that four-hour mark post-ingestion. So really what you're saying is that uh, the original nomogram was based on, you know, this, did you say about 60 data points? And then the FDA kind of said, well, we want a little bit more of a wiggle room, if you will, to allow for that for that patient in a gray area to still receive the antidote for their acetaminophen toxicity. Correct, to prevent missing those patients who may have potentially a lower level but still experience hepatotoxicity. Great. Are there any common pitfalls in using this nomogram? Clearly, you have to have some concept of when the toxicity occurred, but are there any other pitfalls that you've seen in your clinical practice? So in terms of using the nomogram, we all know about this 150 mic per ml mark at the four hours. However, a lot of these patients may present prior to that four-hour mark. So they may say that they ingested acetaminophen, a toxic dose of acetaminophen, one to two hours prior to arrival. And so technically, we can't really plot the acetaminophen level on the nomogram if it's been less than four hours post-ingestion. So in terms of being able to extrapolate, it's not really uh, something that can be done in clinical practice. So if the level is drawn uh, one hour or prior to one hour post-ingestion, it's wise to repeat the level at that four-hour mark. And is there any harm in initiating therapy in that patient who said, I took an entire bottle of acetaminophen 30 minutes ago? and they have a good story, is there any harm in initiating therapy, or should you really wait for that four-hour mark to decide, yes, I'm going to treat you? Well, if you have the level, it may not necessarily be reflective of complete absorption happening, because as mentioned earlier, uh, complete absorption in most, and I use the word most loosely, in the setting of an overdose happens generally within two hours. So if they present 30 minutes post-ingestion, we can't really necessarily say that absorption's been complete to have an accurate measure of what the true acetaminophen level is. Uh, You may end up using time and resources and 
antidote in a case that may not necessarily warrant it. Uh, so I would generally recommend if the level is drawn prior to one hour post-ingestion to repeating the serum acetaminophen level at that four-hour mark. Most of these patients are going to be under observation anyway. We're not going to be sending them home. Uh, so it's something that can feasibly be done within our practice. And I know at least, you know, we mentioned duration of therapy, at least in the patients that I've seen, uh, typically they have a, a relatively stable half-life of their uh, acetaminophen. So if they walk in with a, a four-hour level of 400, um, once they have a level closer to 200 in terms of a half-life, whatever that time frame is, usually that's pretty indicative of uh, being able to predict where they'll eventually have a very low level to the point where we would stop therapy. Kind of one interesting thing that I've observed is that when patients have these kind of toxic doses of Tylenol, the pharmacokinetics or toxicokinetics can change where their half-lives can be extended out quite a bit simply because of the liver not being able to handle the metabolism of that uh, acetaminophen to the same degree that a a normal therapeutic dose would would be. You know, using kind of our first-order kinetics equations, sometimes you can actually predict where that level is going to end up based on how they're metabolizing it, you know, earlier on in their presentation. Correct. And in terms of that aspect of it, so if these patients present post one hour but less than four hours post-ingestion, um, if they still do have a detectable level at that time frame, I still think it's warranted to repeat the level at the four-hour mark. If the level is undetectable based on the pharmacokinetics and what we know about the toxicokinetics of acetaminophen, these patients generally have a low risk of inducing toxicity. Whether or not it's warranted to repeat the level is generally up to the provider at that point. But uh, if it's undetectable, you can probably say that these patients do have a low risk of developing hepatotoxicity and treatment with the antidote may not be warranted. So I think that one common question that's going to come up is the patient where we don't have an adequate history in terms of time of ingestion. What is typically done in those patients where they can't be plotted on the the nomogram because we don't have the x-axis in terms of time from ingestion? I generally have a very, very low threshold for initiating N-acetylcysteine in those patients. We do know that N-acetylcysteine is effective in terms of preventing and treating acetaminophen toxicity. It is effective in the patients who present early on, and we do have a solid history as to the time of the ingestion. And for those patients who may present later on, if they don't have a good time frame for the ingestion, uh, keeping in mind that I have to take a look at the patient and consider whether or not they do have an elevated uh, hepatic transaminase, if they have any abnormalities in their electrolytes or PTINR dysfunction or acute kidney injury. Those patients where we may not necessarily have a significantly elevated acetaminophen level as much as we'd like to see plotted on the nomogram, therapy may still be warranted. And then for those patients where they aren't demonstrating a high level, potentially because they presented late in the ingestion, um, and you do initiate the antidote to them, are they kind of married to that 21-hour duration, or would you ever stop it earlier? Or what is your typical practice for those kinds of patients? I think I would still continue the IV and acetylcysteine for the 21-hour 
period of time. But then again, um, just measuring what the level is prior to the discontinuation of the infusion to determine whether or not continuation is necessary um, beyond that 21-hour time frame. Bearing in mind that the nomogram um, is only validated uh, for use really up to 16 and 24 hours after an acute overdose. So clearly, you know, there's a lot of treatment considerations. Aside from cost, uh, as long as the N-acetylcysteine is dosed appropriately, is there kind of a downside in terms of an adverse effect profile associated with the acetidote or N-acetylcysteine? For the IV formulation, when it was initially developed, the first looting dose was actually developed to be administered over 15 minutes. But a lot of these patients uh, wound up experiencing sort of an anaphylactoid type of reaction. And so for that reason, the uh, loading dose infusion was actually extended from 15 minutes to one hour to help minimize and mitigate this from happening. Other than that, there really isn't much of an adverse effect profile associated with N-acetylcysteine. So from that standpoint, we have an antidote. We can consider using it um, and bearing in mind the threshold for initiation, particularly for those patients without a known time of ingestion, should be uh, generally pretty low. For the, the audience that wants to know more about the topics that you've talked about today and maybe explore some of the references, what's the best way for them to kind of delve deeper into the data? So we do have show notes associated with this episode. Uh, They are posted on uh, my blog, Emergency Medicine PharmD. So you can go to empharmd.blogspot.com where you will find uh, some notes related to uh, this episode on the rumac Matthew nomogram and its application in treating acetaminophen toxicity. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. Well, Nadia, I wanted to thank you for your, your expertise today, and thanks to the audience for joining us. Uh, this does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have topics or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet us your input over at SCCM and use hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. So for the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.